Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Justin Skinner is a farm-raised entrepreneur, author of his first book, Professional Failure, and he's from the great Midwest. He's also a real estate investor. We're going to be talking about some of that uh, in, in short-term rentals. He lives in Springfield, Missouri with his beautiful wife, Kendra, and he enjoys traveling with Kendra, playing pickleball, and most anything active. I got to tell you, I, I'm hearing more and more about pickleball, <laughs> Justin, from uh, I haven't seen it in a bio yet. This is my first time in a bio, but, I, but it seems like everybody's picking up pickleball lately. Absolutely. Well, Corey, thanks for having me. Yes, I agree. Pickleball is all the rage. I know we were actually supposed to play tonight. We play once a week and it's raining, so we're going to get rained out. But yeah, it's uh, it's a fun sport that I feel like kind of brings together a bunch of different ages and backgrounds. So we've we've had a lot of fun doing it. I love it. Well, listen, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about uh, you know some of your real estate investing. We're going to talk about your book. Um, before we get to all that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe uh, 8, 10, 12 years old, because my guess is that being a real estate investor and an author and everything else you do might not have been it for you. But what, you know, back then, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Yeah, so your guess is spot on. I had no idea I wanted to be an author or a real estate investor. I didn't really have that in my family. And I actually wanted to be a professional baseball player. I I wanted that from the age of two and from the first time my dad gave me a baseball. So that was kind of my goal and my focus. And uh, I worked, I basically worked at that until I was 18, 19, and then didn't get the opportunity to play beyond college. And then kind of put my head down and started working other jobs and hopefully trying to feel my way through. But yeah, it's funny, all the roads and different doors and opportunities that have that have led to being an author and a real estate investor. Who would have knew? Yeah, well, listen, if you if you made it playing through college, uh, you made it further than uh, many of us who dreamed about being baseball players when we we're eight or 10 years old. So, uh, you know. Uh, that's true. That's true. I had a lot of fun in college. It was a lot of fun, but obviously it was a, a little heartbreaking having to stop after college, but, sure. you know, all good things come to an end. Sure. Yeah, totally get it. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, obviously that that sports, uh, you know, thing for many of my guests. I mean, more so, it'd be interesting to see how time goes on because it's definitely more so for my male guests than my female guests, but you would think that would shift uh, as women's sports has become, you know, uh, more popular and, 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 you know, and more of the girls are playing. Maybe they just haven't reached, uh, you know, uh, as high a percentage in podcast uh, interview age yet uh, to yeah. uh, have that come up with my female guests as much. Any case, um, one more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could have been something small when you were a kid or something early in your career, whatever comes to mind. 
That yeah, my as first my my first deal really I ever felt like I negotiated was our first real estate deal honestly and that was that was when we were I don't know 27 28 I really yeah. didn't have any much much experience and it was one that I just backed into and we actually signed the contract it was a it was an off the market deal signed a contract with the owner it was like a five page contract we took it to the title company and and that was it and I know I remember my wife saying is this even legal can we do this and uh, so that was that was the first time we sat down he basically gave us a price I didn't even ne- negotiate on price I just said I think that's fair let's move forward with it and let's do it so that was that was our first real deal honestly I love it. And was that what kind of, was that a single family home? Was that a multi? What, that was, was actually it? a commercial building. So we had a commercial <laughs> space. Yeah. Where we, we were renting the space down below. We had the first right to buy it. He wanted to sell the building and then we had three lofts above it. And then from there, we kind of fell in love with real estate and all the things that, that come with real estate. I love it. I love it. So, uh, so you, you did that first deal. I assume that you financed it. We did. Yeah. We actually had a banker that was uh, a friend. I actually played baseball with him in college and he uh, helped us get a, a creative financing deal because we only had 15% to put down, okay. saved up. And he basically gave us a 5% loan on our equipment, our photography equipment to help get to that 20% mark. So it was really creative uh-huh. and there weren't a lot of people that would do that. But yeah, that first deal was creative. And uh, man, I, I feel like I owe a lot to him for for helping me get it done. I love it. Yeah. Listen, you know, there's a couple of key points in there, right? Connections and relationship matter, right? People think, uh, you know, some people think that, oh, it's a bank. It's, you know, they just have underwriting standards and it's about math. And 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 there's a chunk of that in there, certainly. But, you know, but definitely having connections with people who can help put together creative deals uh, really Absolutely. makes sense. And I love that, you know, 5% short on the down payment, you know, and you found a way to, you know, to get a loan based on different collateral and, uh, and get the deal done. That's, uh, exactly. that's really creative. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a long, long time, uh, but it just popped into my mind. This is a little different, but when I, when I leave, so um, uh, I started off my law practice uh, at 30 years old and, in a, in a, in, you know, what's popular now, but back then it was a new concept to be in, uh, uh, you know, it was almost like an early Regis or, uh, we were a kind of place, but before any of those existed and a guy had these shared offices, but I, I didn't even have an office when I started, I had a, uh, he just had phone and mail service. And back then the technology to be able to have it come up on a computer screen and say, Corey Cuffer's office and transfer that call to me in my studio apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan was like, cutting edge, like new technology that they could do that. Right. Um, but in any case, uh, when we moved out of that into our first office, we were so naive that we didn't realize that it wasn't like residential, that they were looking for multi months, you know, in a, in a security deposit, uh, on a real estate rental. And somehow we negotiated and convinced our broker to put up his commission as the security and that we would pay him back over time. Um, for the, uh, Wow, that's this a trusting building on Wall Street. <laughs> so, that's that's trusting on all parties. That's yeah, awesome. it was guy, you know, it was a guy that my 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 ex partner, uh, my partner at the time knew, and but still, it was you know, it was crazy. We got that done. In any case, that's awesome. so I love creative deal stories. So that's your first uh, real estate investment deal. You said you you know you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that that sort of got you you know your appetite up or uh, yeah, you know for real estate. So what what did you do from there? Yeah, from there, we actually, uh, the, all three apartments or lofts were were filled. So we really didn't have to do much. And, and those three, the payments from those three covered the mortgage payment. So really, it was a smooth transition. Uh, so that was really nice. We get kind of start just thinking about more real estate. 
we had a tenant that we unfortunately had to evict. And uh, once she got out, we decided to give Airbnb a shot. So from that, we uh, month one, we, we furnished. We had to obviously invest about $4,000 into furnishing it. And once yeah. we furnished it, we uh, went ahead and um, try, gave Airbnb a shot. And, and it really, from month one, it blew our minds that people wanted to stay with us in this loft apartment. So really the cash flow was about three times better than it was with a tenant in there. And from that point, we really started strategically thinking, okay, how can we buy Airbnbs? Where can we put Airbnbs and build our cash flow through real estate that way? And and honestly, Airbnb is what really catapulted us into into real estate and really uh, being able to kind of roll our cash flow together and buy more properties. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating. I know a couple of the folks have gotten into that business and, you know, I sort of look back and say, wow, that's smart. Like what, a, you know, um, you know, I had a house, I had a, a weekend home up uh, in Lake Joseph. This is before we got our place out in California. And for many, many years, we used it extensively. And then we got to a point where we just weren't using it that much. And I had a interim period before Airbnb came in where it was tough to rent it because it wasn't it was in the Catskills. It was on a lake. And so it was, a, it was a great property, but it, it wasn't a robust market. It wasn't in like some of the other vacation markets where you have brokers or, or even online. Yeah. Um, so that place would sit empty for a while. And then finally, Airbnb came in and, you know, it just on a one off, it made a big difference to me. And then uh, so, you know, you, you think I would have thought of it, but I didn't. Uh, so. Um, so. All right. So then you focused on purchasing properties specifically for the purpose of running them out on Airbnb. Right. Correct. Yep. So we went forward and we found some some properties um, locally with some residential properties. And this was before Springfield didn't have any rules against short-term rentals at the time. That was was on my question list for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there were no rules yet. So we bought several, well, I say several, we bought two, uh, maybe three before the the rules came out and then um, went ahead and we just ran them. And I think there were some people that were scared that we were, you know, hosting parties, but everything that we, um, that everyone that we hosted was just single travelers or couples. So we weren't hosting, we weren't buying these massive houses. So we were buying small single family houses. The, The first house that we bought outside of our commercial building was a house in a nice neighborhood that we bought for $89,000 $89,000 and it was kind of a drug house and it was the worst one on the street and we bought it and everyone loved us coming in because we fixed it up and then we ran an Airbnb out of it. And then Springfield came along and they uh, they came with regulations and all that. And honestly, it was fine because we weren't doing anything wrong or we didn't really have to change anything. We just had to pay the fee and then you know and tell, basically tell the neighborhood what we were doing, which they were already really in approval for. So okay. it didn't change much. And honestly, I think it just um, kept some people from diving in at that point because they just thought it was too much hassle. Which was actually great for you competitively, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so they did not put in, it sounds like any, like for example, um, you know, the significant restrictions in New York City and Santa Monica, which is uh, close to where I, my place in California, um, you know, they require 30 day, you know, no, no you know, 30 day or less. The same thing, New York City, uh, 30 day or less. So that obviously changes the game a lot where you can't yeah. do, I mean, Airbnb is really a, generally a short term rental kind of thing, uh, you know. So they didn't put in any minimum stay requirements. 
Yeah, they did. So basically, if you you can only have a certain amount on a block, but we don't have requirements. If it's a short-term rental within the city limits, we have to obviously get a license. We have to get neighbor approval. And then we have to basically tell the neighborhood through letters what we're doing. As long as everything checks out, we're fine. But uh, you can you can do one night, two nights. We don't have a minimum. The only thing is, if you don't get approval and get all those licenses, you cannot do anything less than 30 days. But we'll talk more about that too and kind of what we did um, in the area of a triplex because the other rule is within a you can only have two Airbnbs within one unit and that makes things a little tricky uh, but we'll we'll probably talk about the triplex as well here in a little bit and um, kind of maybe some creative solutions to how how you can traditionally house people but still advertise on Airbnb. Got it. All right. So before we go there, let's talk about, so you need to notify the neighbors. Um, have you gotten pushback um, from, from any neighbors on, on the, you know, the notifications you've done? Yeah, really the neighborhood meetings has, has been beneficial for the most part. And a lot of it is, you know, older, young, you know, or older women or older men coming in and they really just don't know what it is. And so they're asking questions. So really Got it's it. a couple hours of just meeting neighbors and no one's ever been belligerent or anything, which is really nice. The only right. trouble we've had is you have to get signatures uh, and you have to get 55% of your neighbor's signature. So if there's five neighbors you have to get signatures from, you've got to get three of the five. We have had some neighbors in the past that just ignore you or they, you know, give you an excuse like, well, I'll think about it. Then, you know, come back tomorrow and we'll sign it. And it just keeps getting delayed and delayed. So either if someone's not home or we've had, uh, we had to ship the paper to, I think, I believe California and get it notarized by someone who owned a property out there. So it can be a hassle, but for the most part, neighbors really haven't throwing that much of a fit when we explain, hey, this is what we're doing. We're hosting doctors and nurses. We're not hosting college students. We want someone to have a nice place to live while they stay here in Springfield. Great. Great. Okay. So let's move to the, to this triplex uh, thing. And, uh, and you know, you sort of talk about the limitations on how many units can be, you know, rented out on, uh, on, on Airbnb. Yeah. So uh, yeah, what, what did you do with that one? Yeah, so that was an off-market deal. It was actually a guy that I was learning under uh, the commercial real estate side. He had it, and I kind of offhand said, hey, I'd love to find a triplex in this area. And he goes, well, I've got one. And he threw a price out. And it was it was probably 25000 more than what, I, what it should have been. But at the time, he threw it out, and I said, okay, fine, I'll buy it. And yep. I think it shocked him a little bit. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's one of those things where you can actually, uh, I learned that you can overpay for something as long as you have a plan and it still works out. Yes. So for us, we bought the triplex. We didn't have any plans to go in and do anything less than 30 days. So what we did is we just let all the current, uh, tenants and contracts expire. And as they expired, we went in and we fixed up and we cleaned up the triplex. So it was in a little bit of a rough condition, but we wound up overhauling everything. We wound up spending 40, 50,000 more than we thought we were going to spend, which I feel like it always goes like that. Uh, we put on a new roof, new gutters, and then we furnished it. And my wife was the uh, was the genius behind that. But we furnished everything. Once we got everything furnished, we started putting the units one by one on Airbnb. And we just listed them as 30 plus day rentals. So I think people are referring to it more as medium term rentals now. 
Yeah. Um, but, and then almost immediately, I think we put one up and we got a booking from a nurse. It's, it's about, I don't know, a half mile from one of our hospitals. Okay. So it's a really convenient location. So we've got a lot of nurses, uh, a lot of doctors and people that, that stay in that triplex. So again, it's a nice neighborhood and, uh, it's just kind of a fun, a fun place to be, but that's one way to do the, uh, quote unquote, short-term rental, and, um, without, you know, thinking about your being illegal from the city or anything. Cause really we're adhering to every law. It's just a 30 plus day rental. You have to book it for at least 30 days. Uh, and from that point of view, it's just really just a nice furnished rental. So that's, so that's actually worked out for you to have the 30 day, uh, you know, restriction because of, yeah. And listen, there are a lot of, you know, it's interesting play because yeah, I mean, I know a lot of healthcare professionals who do travel like that and do stints, yeah. you know, temporary stints and, you know, whatever in various places because, uh, I mean, it's a market where often they could work anywhere because they, they need it, whether it's nurses or doctors or sometimes occupational therapists or physical therapists or, you know, folks like yep. that. Yeah, and they're, and, they're, and they're looking not to stay in a hotel for, you know, 30 or 60 days. So Exactly, and that's what we kept hearing. Our, our two largest employers in Springfield are the two biggest hospitals. So we just kept hearing uh, nurses that would come in and say, I'm sick and tired of staying in a hotel, like I'm by myself in a room or I don't have a kitchen. And that's really where we just kind of, we, we got into that and we just kind of kept pushing it and feeding it, so. Great, great. So, so have you continued mainly on the single and small, you know, like the small multi, like the triplex kind of, you know, duplex, triplex kind of uh, investments? Yeah, uh, we haven't bought another triplex, but we did, we wound up building, so the last six deals we've done, we built four brand new houses, uh, but they're all traditional rentals. So we're trying to go more passive at this point because we realized that if you have too many Airbnbs, you just can't do it unless you have a team. So we're trying everything going forward to to be more passive. So we did those four and then we built a, in Branson, Missouri, I don't know if you, you're familiar with that, but we built a short-term rental there in a little community and we're having yep. a management uh, team run that. And then we're building another short-term rental as well there. So the last two we've done are both kind of lake deals and yep. we've, we've loved it so far. Just the hardest part is when you build new is furnishing the entire thing and it's a lot of work. Yeah. 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 So what, yeah. What has, um, that, you know, that analysis of building new. So, well, you, you talk about two things. I mean, the first thing you talked about is, um, is building and then getting like long-term tenant, like, you know, yeah, just traditional rental stuff. Okay. Yeah. Traditional rentals and, and you're building for rental, not for resale. Uh, right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so basically what we found when you're building new, at least in this area is we were able to build below what it was going to appraise for. So once we got these, these completed, we had, you know, an extra 40 or 50 or sometimes 60,000 in equity immediately uh, bought in. So the amazing part was when the banks were a little more generous, maybe a year ago or two years ago, we could go in with really little money down and we could put $10,000 down on a new build, get it started. And then if it appraised out and it say we finished it for 220,000 and it appraised for 300, well, we don't have to bring anything else to the table. Right. So uh, that we basically would get into, you know, a $220,000 house for 10,000 down on, on a basically a commercial deal. So we did that with, with the lake rentals as well, or lake builds. And it's just worked out really well because we can kind of redirect that down payment money into yeah. furnishings and just making it maybe a little, little nicer. So yeah. uh, it's been, we've, we've enjoyed doing that. And I think we'll, we'll continue to as deals make sense. 
And, you know, you have this extra equity in these places. So are you leaving equity in or are you pulling equity out? Are you refinancing uh, any of that and pulling cash out for, for additional deals? So not on the new build yet. We do have the equity. I'm okay. And the reason I'm leaving the equity in just because I don't know the future and I don't know, you know, if there is a market drop or a dip, yeah. whatever, I don't want to get in a scramble to try and cover equity. So we have enough built in now where let's say the market drops by 30%. Well, we still have enough in there to be fine. And, and we're not going to hopefully get any calls from banks saying, you know, you need a margin call or something like that. So that's, right. that's the plan. Uh, we had a couple other places that we just paid off. We have drawn some money out of those and refinanced or done a line of credit if we need cash. But I think the biggest thing is we're just not in a hurry to build this, this huge multimillion dollar portfolio. And we just want to go at a slow, steady pace and really not uh, overstretch ourselves because I've just, I've read and I've just seen people that they get into too much debt and then one little thing goes wrong and the whole tower crumbles. So we'd rather just go at it slow and steady. And even if we're not using every bit of equity that we have, uh, we feel comfortable and um, good about going forward. I love it. You know, yeah. I mean, because, you know, in, in the real estate investment industry, there's often this you know, view of, you know, pulling, leveraging everything you possibly can, using every dollar effectively so that, you know, the money's not idle and you can buy even more properties. But you're right. I mean, that's all good when things are booming and cruising. But uh, yeah, you see so exactly. many examples where people get hurt when they're over leveraged yeah. if, you know, if there's a market correction or, you know, uh, whether it's overall or whether it's a particular area or whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. And, and listen, uh you know, folks who are listening uh, on the audio only version, which is which is pretty much everybody because we don't we don't do a lot on the video, but, um, you know, may not uh, know how how young you look, but you got you, you got some runway. You got some years. No reason to rush. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've got I've got a lot of, uh, of wise people around me that hopefully kick me back in line. So, yeah, for me, I just don't I just don't need to get in a rush. So I agree. I have older men that say, hey. Uh, here's where we are. Uh, if we could go back, this is how we do it. And I just want to be humble enough to say, you know what? Fine. I'll do it your way early. I don't need to make the same mistakes. I'm good with that. Yeah. 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 I love it. Love it. That's excellent. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. Is there anything else that you want to share around the real estate investment, whether it's uh a fun deal you've done or any lessons you learned or whatever. And then I, and then I do want to talk about you, you know, your book and what else you have going on. Yeah. I'll, I'll kind of tell you one, a failure that might be a fun story. Um, we, so we came across a property in a smaller town outside of Springfield and we had uh, kind of done our due diligence. I went out there, I met the owner and he wanted to sell it for a specific price. And I don't think it was just astronomical, but it was maybe around 300000 And it was an old car wash that had been basically um, renovated into these little garages. So anyway, he wanted to sell it. He said, hey, I've got a tenant that's willing to pay this amount. And so on the, on paper, everything looked good. I met the tenant, all that. 
as we were getting closer to uh, closing time, I kept trying to get a lease. I said, I'm not, luckily in the in the contract, I said, this deal is only good if I get a lease signed before we close. Contingency for the lease, yeah. Yeah, and that was, someone told me to do that and I threw that, otherwise I would have been in trouble. So anyway, we got closer and closer. The tenant just kind of ghosted me, would not say anything. I thought the guy was trustworthy. Long story short, uh, wound up the tenant was the whole plan was just to basically sell it. And then he was jetting and then we were going to get left holding the bag. So uh, luckily we kept going and we said, look, we're not closing without the lease. We wound up walking from the deal. He, the owner threatened to sue us. And luckily the, you know, the lawyer said, you know, it's in writing. Like you never got the lease. Like you promised you can't do anything. So that was a moment where uh, the deal, we actually didn't get the deal, but I'm very happy that I had some people around me that gave me advice to to do and, and put that wording in place. Otherwise we would have had a really rough situation on our hands. So that was one yeah, that didn't without, work out. Without that lease yeah. contingency. Yeah. Exactly. That was a condition of closing. Yeah. So exactly. So that was the one that didn't work out, um, but I'm very thankful it didn't. Now it sounds like this, but were the were the tenant and the landlord like really in cahoots? Was this some sort of scam plan, Apparently. or just was? Yeah, a, wow. I don't know. I don't know if they were just scared and what, but I think what happened was the owner had put in a lot more into the building than what he had wanted, and he was just trying to get it back out. So even though the building wasn't worth that, and and maybe I can think the best of him, but just how everything lined up, I just think that yeah, they might have been in cahoots together and trying to pull one over. Luckily, uh, luckily I, I didn't get, get, or that didn't happen. So. Hey, listen, you know, when the potential bad deals are the ones you didn't do, that's great news because, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know even the most successful of, of whether it's real estate investors or corporate investors or entrepreneurs in general or whatever, but doesn't have usually at some point in their career, some, some deal that actually they did do that went bad. So, you know, it's great. It's great when the ones that go bad are the ones you don't do. That's, that's much better yeah. scenario than the, then ended up in a bad deal. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. So, all right. So tell us about, uh, so, so professional failure, book came out in, in April, right? Tell, tell us about, uh, tell us about the book. Uh, what's, uh, what is it about? I mean, obviously by the title, I guess we're talking about failure, but what's, what's you know, with professional failure to give us the angle. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of a, a book I started writing. I kind of started journaling and and gathering stories. I heard so many stories and podcasts about people being successful and which is it, it all in great. Um, but I just almost got tired of the stories of like, this is how I did. This is why I'm so great because I made these choices. So right. I started writing kind of about it and thinking about it. The more I thought about it, I just thought about all the lessons I had learned from my failures and from, you know, failings in my life. But at the same time, I never considered myself a failure. So I kind of just came from that mindset and thought, well, if someone's going to do this or someone's scared of failure or they don't want to be looked at as a failure, how can they navigate that? So yep. that was the genesis of the book, if you will. And the more I wrote on it, the more I, clarity I got on the on the subject, I guess. And it was really fun to write. And and honestly, it's really it's been really fun to kind of see some fruit from it and maybe see some some people push through that fear of failure yeah. um, in, in order to get to a successful outcome. So what, what is, uh, give us some, a couple of highlights, lessons from the book, you know, uh, things that people will uh, get when they read it. Yeah. One, one of the biggest things that I kind of talk about is, is the importance of trying versus the outcome. So like, I think so many people just get caught up in success and fail. Like if, you know, you go out and do something or let's say you're in sports and you lose a game. Well, to me, the the success is in the trying, the going out and the competing. That's success. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. 
that's not necessarily how you should keep score, even though obviously that is you should keep score. Um, but I think that's one of the big key takeaways is just that that mindset of I'm going to try, I'm probably going to fail, um, but I'm going to try anyway in spite of that. So that's one of the big ones. And then another big one is is self-talk and and just giving yourself grace because that's something I struggle with, to be honest, is I'm very hard on myself. Uh, I, my self-talk can be very harsh sometimes. So uh, as long as you're willing to give yourself grace and then give others grace as well, I think it will work out in your favor when you're navigating these failures. No, it's interesting. I mean, these are such important lessons and there's so many you know, we hear it in so many ways and there are cliches around it. Like, you know, people say on the on that last point, you know, you hear this thing that we would say, if anybody talked to you the way you talk to yourself, you punch them in the face. So you would never yeah, talk exactly. to them again or whatever, right? Um, and, and then on the, um, you know, on the, uh, uh, yeah, and, and no matter how many times, you know, people hear that, there's, you know, it's it's great that that you hear that or, or on the, you know, on the other point you made about failure, you know, just trying you know, you hear all these cliches, let's take it back to baseball. You know, the, the best hitters in baseball fail seven out of 10 times, you know, uh, you know, exactly. it is, right. You know, so, and we can hear that so many times, but so many people just need to hear it again in a different way because they, they, they do those things. They're afraid to get on the court or, you know, and, and put themselves in the game or, you know, or they, you know, they let the negative self-talk, you know, stop them. You know, it's interesting because I spent so much time with entrepreneurs, right? I've been an entrepreneur yeah. since I'm 15. I mean, really, like I had a business with employees or let's call them contractors. I wasn't withholding taxes from the government so, <laughs> uh, when I was 15. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and my clients are entrepreneurs in all industries. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been a member of entrepreneurs organization for, uh, you know, a long time. And so this is who I hang out with. And people, some people think that, you know, we have this vision of entrepreneurs that we're risk takers and we're always out there and whatever. And, you know, some people who uh, maybe work for other folks or just, you know, see you as successful, think that means that none of the stuff you're talking about comes up, right? That we have no yeah. negative self-talk, that we don't have fear that comes up when, you know, we're going to try stuff. And, and it's just, it's not true. You know, it's just, it's just that I think what makes a difference with entrepreneurs is that they do push through, right? Yeah. They do get exactly. on the court and they do try and they do fail and they do, you know, and they don't, and then they don't get stopped by the failure. That's, that's another piece. I don't know if you talk about the book, but um, you know, but like, listen, we've all failed. And and the question yeah. is, all right, are you going to, you know, some people fail at something or have a challenge at something and say, I'm never doing that again. And yeah. you know, the entrepreneurial spirit is okay. All right. I learned from that, whatever, how do I do it better? Let's get back in the court, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think the the fun part too is is meeting other entrepreneurs and, and almost sharing the stories of failure and lessons because it really does humanize us. Like no matter how big, how powerful you are, how much experience you have, we're still all imperfect. And I think that's important to remember too. So no matter what we try or what we do, we're never going to get it right 100% of the time. So I think the sooner that we can realize that, uh, we're not going to be perfect and kind of skip that level of perfectionism that we expect out of ourselves or the people around us. I think really it would make our communities better. It would make ourselves better. And it would give us a chance to just say, hey, let's go for it. What's the worst that could happen? People are going to laugh at us. Um, I, I just think it's a conversation we should have. I, I so love this because generally, even when successful people talk about failure, right? They talk about it very quickly as a as a just a, a prelude to the hero or the success story, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, you know, like twenty years ago I went bankrupt, but then I went, you know, and then and then but then they talk about, um, 
And, and I always appreciate, uh, we, we had a, um, I've mentioned this once or twice on in the several years of this podcast, but we had an event many years ago in entrepreneurs organization in New York, and they've done it in other places that they called the Night of the Living Dead. And they really created an atmosphere where everybody shared like their worst, their most challenging failure, whether it was in business, in life. You know, people talked about divorces, people talked about even suicidal thoughts. Some of them, people talked about bankruptcies and business failures and I mean, you name it. And it was specifically set up where that was it. Like you didn't talk about that as a prelude to your success story. You just shared the real, real stuff. And the thing that was universal, every story was different, but the thing that was universal is every person. And there were some, you know, I mean, there were everybody in that room. I mean, to be an EO, you need a million dollars in revenue. So everybody in that room had a certain level of success. And there were some folks in that room that were, you know, I mean, really killing it, right? You know, from and maybe some of them had, you know, were more open about sharing whatever they were sharing that. Some of them had never shared that, you know, whatever they shared ever. But the universal thing was that everybody had something that was really deep, you know, like really yeah. real, you know, in my authentic New York book, I share about sleeping on an air mattress in my glass front office in Williamsburg, Brooklyn during the great recession, when I went from being, you know, on top of the world with my lake house and everything to, you know, my revenue going down 30, 40, 50, 60 grand a month uh, in the great recession. So, I get it. Uh, so I'm, I'm thrilled that you did it. I'm excited. I have not had an opportunity to read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing too. You kind of talk about like everyone has those moments, all these like high earning uh, individuals. And I've just, I've spoken with friends and people I know too, that say, yeah, I could, I could never do that. I could do that. I'm, I'm stupid at math or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And I think they just beat themselves down or they put the, everyone else on pedestals and they think, well, they don't ever make mistakes. They don't do this right. when I'm just here saying, look, we all make mistakes. I'm not perfect at math. I may, I mess up on math all the time. I mess up on names. I mess up on whatever. I just don't want to beat myself up for it because I know it's just a part of the process. Yeah, it's interesting. Like there, there's stats that show that a um, unusually high percentage of uh, successful entrepreneurs are actually dyslexic, right? Yeah. Or they have ADD, ADHD, HD. Like it's like there's all these things that stop other people are actually show often in a higher percentage uh, in uh, in entrepreneurs. I think even I mean this may not be true, so maybe I should say, it, but I think Richard Branson's. Uh, dyslexic or uh, I don't you know. I don't know that I can speak yeah. to that, but it, it, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, so I met some really, really amazing dyslexic entrepreneurs that just crush it, and I would have never known unless they told me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. great stuff, great stuff. So the uh, I assume the book's available and all the usual. It is, uh, yep. Places, Am- you know. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and then we've got an Audible version as well that you can you can listen to. A- excellent. So, uh, a professional failure. Check it out. Definitely check it out. And then, um, Justin, if people want to uh, find out more just generally about, you know, the other stuff. Well, actually, before I say that, so real estate investing, author, anything else you have going on uh, uh, that you want to tell other us than, about? Uh, my wife uh, joked the other day and she's like, hey, we should we should like travel and play some some pickleball tournaments. So who knows? Maybe we'll we'll start traveling in the country and I'll be in California for a pickleball tournament at some point. I, I don't really there know. But that's the fun part of sometimes the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, especially on, when you're on it with your wife too, is that sometimes doors open that I just have, it blows my mind and I just have no idea what's coming. So I am open to a lot of things and I just am trying to prepare myself for whatever comes. Love it. Love it. Love it. So if people want to, I mean, do you, uh, are you self-funding all your real estate stuff? Or are you doing, 
you putting together any funds or investment or uh, what are you doing on the real just, side? Yeah, just, just self-funding right now. I know we've talked about, uh, I don't know a ton about syndications. I've got some friends that yeah. do some, um, but I've never, you know, put together or taken uh, other people's money to invest. And I think it's just a more of a matter of trying to, uh, grow slowly. I'm just, we're, my wife and I are not in a hurry. And I think we've been advised to really be careful on who we partner with as well, just yeah, because when yeah. you partner with someone, uh, you better know who you're partnering with. So we've tried to take that slow as well. So not saying that's never going to be in the picture, but we really haven't done that to, to this point. It's been all, all our own, own money. Got it. So is there a website for anything, the book or anything you do yeah. around the book as well? Yeah, you, can, yeah. you can go to www.professional-failure.com. And then you can also go to Justin Skinner or justincskinner.com. That leads to the same place. And then you can find me on, on social media through, through that website. Uh, I'm just at Justin C. Skinner. So feel free to check out um, kind of the, the content I'm putting out. And uh, hopefully it's it's encouraging and uh, exciting and maybe motivates you to put your phone down and go outside. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it. So, Justin, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is uh, freedom. And for me, that means freedom from all people from oppression around the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, I think ultimate freedom to me is the ability to make decisions uh, maybe without strings attached. Because I know uh, sometimes if if someone is tied down, whether through a sponsorship or a job or whatever, if you make a decision and someone says, eh, not so quick, if you do that, we're taking this away. That to me might not be ultimate freedom. So to me, ultimate freedom, yeah, is just the ability to make your own decisions and be in control of your own time. So I feel like we're still very lucky. I was very lucky to be born in the United States and I'm very grateful for that. And, um, you know, I, I think that we'll just continue to hopefully enjoy the freedoms that we have. And, um, uh, you know, again, coming back to, to freedom with, with money, money does play a part in that. So we do have to figure out how to take care of our money that we've been given and blessed with and hopefully bless others along the way too. I love it, Justin. Thank you for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.